Johnny's always usually a voice of moderation. Me and him, we get along good. So all due respect, let's not jump in and blame Johnny. True, John's a pragmatist, but he's also a greedy motherfucker. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one at a time. Today, we are exploring episode 11 of season four, Calling All Cars. And my partner in crime is John. Hello, hello, hello. John, welcome back. It's good to be back. To Casa Pada Bing, pal. I've missed this place. You ready to jump in? You know it. And let it rip? Let's do it. This episode was written by David Chase, Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, and Terrence Winter. Winter is coming to The Sopranos. Directed by Tim Van Patten, originally aired on November 24th, 2002. HBO synopsis, after a sit-down with Carmine and Johnny Sack, Tony contemplates the future of the HUD partnership. Meanwhile, Polly blows off steam with an old pal. Janice starts losing patience with an obsessive Bobby, and Melfi ponders the Freudian undercurrents of Tony's latest dreams. Okay, so the episode starts with a dream sequence. First thing of note, Tears of a Clown is playing in the background. Little Smokey Robinson. 1967 song written by Smokey Robinson and a young and unknown Stevie Wonder. No way. Wonderful connective use of music to convey the theme of a sad clown. In this case, the inner mind of a sad clown. Next, John, we see a crucifix wrapped around a rearview mirror of an older vintage car. It's a Cadillac. Always style for your boy, Ralph Cifaretto. R.I.P. Cue my heart will go on for John over here. Foreground uh, of the scene is reminiscent of the Midwest, Kansas or something, but we're not in Kansas anymore. I was thinking Elvis country, maybe. Ooh, like it. I'll take that one instead. We see the back of Ralph's head, his bald head. There's a green caterpillar crawling on it. What do caterpillars symbolize, I wondered. One thing that comes to mind after all these years of watching and re-watching and thinking about the caterpillar is that you can't tell a person's potential just by looking at them. It takes time to evolve, to become a butterfly or a moth. Another thing that it triggered was the notion of patience and presence. So what I mean by that is a caterpillar doesn't know when exactly it's going to change, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of like lives its fucking life and marches forward or upward and patiently waits for change. That's a message that I want to take with us throughout this episode as it pertains to Tony. And it's kind of symbolic here, right? Because this whole episode wrestles with Tony not feeling like he's getting anything out of therapy. He's slowly marching forward. He's been in therapy for the past four seasons, and we've been there with him. But he's soon going to tell us that he's not changing. He hasn't hit that proverbial uh, cocoon yet. Yes. He isn't metamorphosing. He's, to quote him, back to square one. So the dream. Tony's in the back seat, staring blankly at the back of Ralph's head. 
taking in that scalp now that it's been recently excavated. Um, did you listen to that episode that we did, by the way? I did. Where we recount <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the bowling ball. Why did you think he had a bowling ball? Since you never got to answer that question. That's a question I would have asked you. Why does Ralph Cifaretto have a bowling ball and a bowling ball bag in his house? Who doesn't? Carmelo's driving. What does that mean? Of course, that's the $64,000 question. Does it mean control? Does it mean that this is her season? Maybe she's the caterpillar that's going to turn into a butterfly and fly away from North Jersey with Furio. With that new haircut. With that new haircut. Cue Mariah Carey, butterfly, over here. (laughs) If Naya was here, she'd appreciate that one. It's an album that clearly signaled, John, Mariah Carey's metamorphosis from one kind of artist to another, right? Mm -hmm. See what I did there? Ralph and Carm are conversing. That was difficult because we can't hear what's being said. Do they know something that Tony doesn't? Are they in on something that he's unaware of? I ask those questions because even in his dreams, Tony's paranoid and suspicious. Also, it bears mentioning again something that we've talked about a lot on the pod. Road trips, right? People in cars, patterns, themes, coming back to it as we end another season of the show. Hang on to this particular thing about traveling. Um, There's a bit on Freud that we're going to do in a few moments. Proverbially speaking, Carmela's been driving away all season. That's what I saw. Little by little, episode by episode, and Tony's been in the backseat. And what does being in the backseat symbolize? As a parent, I can tell you exactly what it symbolizes. A lack of control. You're calling the shots. Person in the front seat's calling the shots. The inability to influence direction, right? Further down the pecking order, to quote a phrase from a show that's coming up. Who said it? Oh, you got me. Arena. Arena. Imagine where you are in the pecking order. Do you think uh, Tony subconscious realizes that Carmela's kind of paving her own way before he realizes? Does his subconscious know that she's she's straying away exit from strategy? You know, headed towards Furio's arms and possibly yeah, because he's he's externally unaware. It's one of the things that we joke about and we talk about on the pod and you see on the show, all this stuff's been happening with Furio and it's going way over Tony's head. He never suspects it, right? And we get to White Caps, we're not going to spoil it here, but their showdown, part of the reason it's so effective is that he was completely blown away by the revelation. The caterpillar is moving its way down Ralph's head. I couldn't help myself here, John. Perhaps... It's looking for a place of warmth, like Cosette. Cue the soundbite. She must have crawled under there for warmth. Then we see Gloria. She's in the back next to Tony, dressed down, relaxed hair, very scenery appropriate. Interestingly, though, it looks like she's finally found peace. Do you see that? Yeah. The caterpillar turns into a butterfly. A not-so-beautiful one, though. Concurrent with that imagery, then, we see that Gloria turns into Svetlana. Greta Garbo over here. But this time, there's no smoke all around. Then, 
John, we see Carmela with the new hair. Everybody's hair is changing in the scene. Everybody around Tony's changing in the scene, except Ralph's hair, of course. Everybody's going through some kind of metamorphosis, the butterfly metaphor, except, remember, Tony. Before marching ahead, John, with all this talk of metamorphosis and change, it's a good time to mention Franz Kafka and his novella, The Metamorphosis, in which one of its messages is the notion that people can transcend their hardships and become something else, something different, something great. It's also worth mentioning that Kafka was known This is how it all ties together. I always have a point no matter how far I reach. (laughs) Kafka was known for conveying realism in the context of existential angst, guilt, mystical transformation, and the absurdity of things. A precursor of sorts, perhaps, to Mr. Chase. All of this is to say this dream is Kafka-esque, as are countless sequences throughout the show. Sounds kind of Kafka-esque. Yeah. (laughs) Totally Kafka-esque. Okay, wrapping up the fucking dream already. I did my hands like Polly. Carm looks back at Tony for a moment, as does Ralph, all eyes on Tony, right? People in the backseat, people in the front. This puts him into a panic to the point of disturbing his sleep. Tony wakes. It's the middle of the night. He was dreaming. Random question for you. When you wake from a dream, are you able to fall right back asleep? Generally, yeah. Even if it's a somewhat morbid dream. Lucky son of a gun. I can never. I have to get up. I got to do the old man piss, or I got to go to the fridge. I can never fall back asleep if I wake up. I've never had a hard time sleeping. I bring this up, and I had that random question from you because I'm somewhat envious of that ability. Are you a sleeper in general? Can you fall asleep quickly? Or do you need, like, an environment of, like, complete quietude and noise? No, I'm I'm easy. You're easy? Yeah. Son of a bitch. Cut to Melfi's office. She's stroking her chin. She's flanked by a statue of a woman about to squat on one side and a triangle on the other, a trinity. There's messaging there. I've never quite been able to figure out what, but something is happening with that statue. Then we get a wide shot of them, which is something we haven't seen in a while. Post-dream distance perhaps maybe he's already thinking in his mind subconsciously i keep coming back to this therapy shit but i keep having these fucking dreams tony won't say much there's an awkward silence i'm on the receiving end of that all too often when i do this podcast and people look at me thinking what the fuck am i saying (laughs) including oren when he was in that chair there were three moments in the notes to him i said hey listen he's like so you you want me to have something to say after every bullet point i said it's a jumping off point for you on every single bullet point. Absolutely. My questions for you will be specifically in bold, but if you don't have something to say, and if you don't have a question for me, awkward silence is perfectly acceptable. (laughs) You embrace it. I embrace it. Yeah. Well, sometimes you say it better than anyone else could try to follow up to. So you're too kind. So Tony won't say much. There's an awkward silence. It's like that old saying, John in negotiation 101, he who speaks first loses. 
And this is a negotiation of sorts, at least for Melfi from her vantage point, because she stands to lose him as a patient today. Melfi's bopping and weaving. Here it comes. Here it comes, baby. Melfi's bopping and weaving like Jamal Crawford trying to create some space, any space, to get an open look. That one was for Justin. I don't know where we were going. No place. So we never seemed to get anywhere. Kind of like this therapy. He's kind of saying in a roundabout, Tony way, John, where's my metamorphosis, goddammit, from this therapy, right? Why aren't I different? Another observation, this scene is riddled with hand gestures, conjuring up Richie April over here. Melfi touching each of her fingertips with her thumb like a metronome, a therapy metronome. Then there's Tony emphatically talking with his hands. The use of silence in this scene, in this room, is especially interesting and dynamic, and it keeps you guessing. Like, where's this going to go? Two people in their respective chairs, but they're dancing. They're in lockstep like they're lost at the end of a Tame Impala song. I needed to squeeze them in because they're coming out with a new album. John, four seasons of Sopranos at this point, virtually, not quite at the finale, but four seasons of Sopranos. How do you think therapy has been going for Tony at this point in general? Well, so I I tried to take it from both sides and then have some personal empathy with it, too. I can see from Melfi's quick wit to explain you are a lot different. You know, you're not having these panic attacks. You are much more a different person as a result of this therapy. But also, um, having been in therapy before uh, post-divorce, there was a period of time where I found value in it. And there was a point where I said, you know what, I appreciate this, but I, I'm done with this. Mm. And to, to make that step, you know, requires some self-reflection. Uh, I think Tony's a little bit haste in the decision. I think he's frustrated. I think about the previous episode where he was shown as pretty vulnerable and crying to Melfi. And uh, the lack of control that he has in his life, I, I think he's expecting a, fi- a quick fix, like he always has, sitting in that chair with her. You agree then with her professional opinion that he needs therapy. I appreciated that she was accepting of him and not really giving much pushback to ending it or to to continuing it, I should say. It's a nice setup for the writers, right? Because it makes you realize this is the episode where he does this. He does the timeout on therapy, but they immediately give you something that's going to make him need to actually run right back to it. Yeah, and he's in, a, and and the question is going to be the the story arc is going to be how long can he hold out, right? Exactly. So, Melfi takes it on the chin, but is unmoved. She's like Drago taking jabs to the face, like they're brief gusts of wind or something. Melfi asks, "Has your friend recently changed?" The word "change" is important here clearly leading us down the path to an examination of metamorphosis. Well, yeah, Doc, my friend has changed. He's in five different pieces instead of one cohesive whole now. Have you heard of the theory that uh, part of the reason was his potential fear of her or him letting too much out 
and her maybe knowing that he had killed Ralph? I'm a card-carrying member of he sees all the permutations at internet speed. Mm -hmm. And he knew day one when he goes in to talk to a therapist, there's certain places he's not going to go. But I can say to you, having done therapy now, I've been in it for almost six months at this point, Mm -hmm. things do come out that you don't expect. Yeah. And one of the most interesting things about therapy is, at least my experience with it, has been initially I thought that to get my money's worth, right? That's just expensive. Every session, there needs to be a fucking breakthrough right? If I don't walk away from the session with a breakthrough, failure. But the genius, the true genius of a pro is that they let you reach your own conclusions at your own pace. Some people can come to the realizations quickly. Other people, it takes a long time. And a good guide, which is what a therapist is supposed to be, right? Is a guide. A good guide lets you go at your own speed. So I don't think that theory that you mentioned, I don't think it applies to Tony because he's never going to let that side go. It's like, it's like a brick wall, right? but he will reach a point where he is saying, I'm not going to go here with you. And because I can't go there with you, I can't break that wall down. You and me, there's nothing left for me to, there's nothing else that I can say to you. So we need to time out. And it feels like that's where he's at right now. Well, we've watched the evolution of him try to use it as a quick fix to end the panic attacks. Yes. To fix and and have work tips to improve his business to justifying his infidelity. And all the way, like, I think it's all about managing your expectations. And Tony really never set any standard of how he was going to measure whether this was worth his time or not. No, quite the contrary. He went into therapy because of a panic attack, but he quickly realized that he could weaponize the things that he learns in therapy and apply it in his outside life. Right, I'm saying that as an example. I'm just saying, like, he... It was never consistent. There's, yes. Whereas I think in, in most scenarios, we're like, I, I'm, I came here to do this. Yes. And if we don't get to this, then what are we doing? Right. But he's trying everything. Most of us go to get better. Sure. He's going to get arsenal, in a way. <laughs> so, Tony says... Can't you just tell me what the fucking thing means? You obviously know. She says that meaning is elicited through verbalization. This I had to nerd out on. Verbalization. Therapeutic verbalization is a big thing. I tried to look at it at a nutshell level, but I was inundated by scholarly articles every which way. So I digested it to like four sentences. The key to verbalization is expressing the unexpressed stuff you haven't said before or to anyone else to allow for an empathetic response. There is power in verbalizing something that hasn't been verbalized before. It becomes a physical thing as opposed to something residing subconsciously inside. That was the revelation that I have when I was reading this. And when it's physical, right, other people, namely a therapist, can help you parse it. An interesting thought I read somewhere was that verbalizing is stabilizing. 
Perhaps it could have clicked for Tony if Melfi had explained it like this. Instead, we get... I don't obviously know. I didn't have the dream. The meaning is elicited through verbalization. And the Gehoxagogen is uh, framed up by the Ramistam. So... She takes him up on it, John. She plays his game. She's a true clinician. She tries to analyze the dream through her lens. Tony explains this thing about how the old guys were different. He jokes about wives being in the back. Does it have to be a fucking cancer hospital in here? Melfi doesn't get the humor. Question, doesn't she get him by now? Like, can't she pick up on his cues? That struck me as a little odd that she wasn't as sharp as he was in that moment. Yeah, I I think she may have and was sort of putting up some resistance to not allow him to get the satisfaction of the joke. Or, you know, maybe she's actually trying to hit on it to see if he talks about it some more. You know, like, tell me more about your feelings on women to try to get at something, maybe. I don't know. That just came to me. Melfi says... Whatever's gone on with the other two, you want to square it with Carmela? That's a great framework for why she's driving. A great explanation for why she's driving. Thank you, Dr. Melfi. So, next, she brings up Freud. She says... Freud says dreams are wishes. Dreams are wishes. And there is no better place than to try to build some context around the Sopranos and dreams from the vista of Freudian thought than right here. Three things, John, I want you to think about. Freud, of course, wrote a whole book on dreams and confidently titled it The Interpretation of Dreams. A couple of things Freud said about dreams that apply to Soprano's world, at least, are that people are houses in dreams. There's a lot of houses in Sopranos dreams. There's one in this episode. So I want to be sure to flag that as we go forward. And home, home is where Chris Martin of Coldplay wants to go in clocks, which is played later in this episode. We'll get to that. We'll get to that song later. Continuing with Freud though, death, he says, is conveyed through travel or some kind of journey the car scene in the beginning. And nakedness is conveyed, curiously, through clothing. Uniforms, in particular. Again, there's a lot to unpack there that would spoil a lot in terms of future dreams, but I think we have three solid runways from which to take off and fly through Soprano's dreams going forward. I like it. But with Freud, John, there's an important caveat. And Freud himself said this. Sometimes a cigar is just a fucking cigar. Okay, Tony flips. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's a fungal. Classic, I fucking love that line. Then he does this whole thing about the tropes, and you kind of alluded to the tropes of why people go into therapy. His version of that, the Tony version, is that my mother would come when she saw pot roast. Her obsession with meat, of course. That was great. So fucking perfect, right? Flashback to a previous season also, a symmetry. Then he's second in the birthing order, which apparently is a reason why people fucking go to therapy. Are you second in the birthing order? I'm the oldest child. You're the oldest child, so you're not second in the birthing orders. 
Carm's driving the car. Again, control, right? These are all the tropes for why a person goes to therapy. But at the end of the day, it was a little harsh, but I kind of liked it because it showed his level of comfort and trust with Melfi. In the same episode, again, it's a little ironic here, he's he's established four years worth of comfort and trust and vulnerability with this person. It's taken years to build this rapport, right? But he's about to end it. He wants a timeout on therapy. Sound cut to a whistle blowing. Nice touch, writers. Surgical transition. Bobby's at his kid's baseball game, Sophia's. She gets sent to the car to get a jacket from a car on account that she just had a cold. Newsflash, doesn't matter if you wear a fucking jacket if you have a cold, but I love that little <laughs> touch. In the car, she sees, uh, she sees a cake that Bobby made for Karen. Kind of morbid. Did you have any takeaways from that cake? I think people deal with grief in different ways. I've heard some really strange stories before of like certain keepsakes that people have or routines or... So I don't judge him for it. No. I think going to the cemetery and digging up, the it's a unique one. I miss you so much. I'd be with you right now if it wasn't for the kids. Powerful sentiment. Makes you love Bobby all the more. When you hear someone say that, you reflect on your own relationship. Yeah. And go, Do I feel well, that fuck. way about my wife? And if, if I didn't say something like that, does that mean that I don't love them as much as this person does? Well, there's a really big saying, one of the keys to a successful marriage is loving the mother, loving your wife more than you love your kids. It's like a big thing because the kids are only going to be with you for a certain period of time in your life and they're going to go have their own lives. You're going to be with your wife I've heard that. And it doesn't seem like it's a very popular opinion to have. Yeah, no, I think it's an important opinion though. I think it's, I think it's the right opinion. But I, I don't know a single parent that doesn't love their kids more than anything else. But to counterbalance it, when you're about to become an empty nester, have you watched that new show that's out on uh, that's out on Amazon Mrs. called Fl- Modern Love? Oh, I was gonna say Mrs. Fletcher is a little bit of that in the beginning. A little bit of that as well too. Yeah. yeah. Like, what are we gonna do when the kids move out? Yeah. Kind of a thing. Check out Modern Love. It's good. I'll check it out. It's really good. Wrapping things up on Bobby. Later, we learn today's his anniversary. So it's not so crazy that he's doing that. I guess if you think about it. Cut to Carmine and Johnny Sack flexing. They want. of the HUD business. It was the business we needed in this episode, and it came a little late. Yes. We've been down this road before. We share Zellman. Therefore, any of the fruits of Zellman, we're entitled to. We done here? Fucking Ralph. We talked about this earlier as if we didn't know, right? Because we didn't spoil it. But the whole thing with Zellman being a double agent, it's made abundantly clear right here. Therefore, any of the fruits of Zellman, we're entitled to. Tony leaves, but not before indicating that Johnny Sack may be responsible for Ralph's whereabouts. Great angle to sell to his people and on the street that New York had something to do with Ralphie. Seed planting. And that's something Carmine could believe too. Right, because he's, he's kind of out of it. He trusts Johnny Sack. Johnny Sack's his point person, right? Yeah. It's something he can take up with Johnny Sack. And Johnny Sack's not as good of a chess player. Well, he wanted Ralph killed and he wanted his blessing. Exactly. How classic is Johnny Sack's hand gesture yeah. when, uh, when Tony walks out? Back on Bobby, Janice is serving the family dinner. She starts talking about Outback's profitability. 
which got me all excited, it signaled to me that she's been watching CNBC like Carmela. The money, honey, love ran deep circa early 2000s. Bobby storms out like Tony moments ago before him. Symmetry, John. Try the mushrooms, Janice says. I don't know what they do to them, but they're delicious. And Bobby has mentioned that he would sit at home and eat mushrooms all day if he could. Mm-hmm. John, probably to no surprise, I looked it up. What the fuck does Outback do to their mushrooms? Well, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> Here's the fucking recipe, Janice. The raw materials include, of course, button mushrooms, beef broth, diced onion, and burgundy wine. Saute all that together for 15 minutes, and bam! There's your fucking $30 a sides at Outback, Janice. I'm not ready to eat that yet. If you want to get cute, John, if you want to get cute with it, you can add the wine in three parts over the course of the 15-minute saute session. Bobby goes to the grave every day, we learn. John, I guess when you think about it, it's not too dissimilar from what we do every time we finish watching The Sopranos. We just keep coming back. (laughs) Back on Carmine and Johnny Sack. They're manjin, the phone rings. Tony says he's willing to go to 5.5. From 40... That's insulting. To 5... No, it's gangsters what it is. But it's insulting. Why do you think they told him to hang up? It's gangster. It's an ultimate boss move. This is Tony Soprano negotiation 101, John. They say 40, you say 5.5. What are you doing? You're signaling that you're willing to play ball, but the other side has to come down to earth. It's his version of not speaking first. Because if you speak first in a negotiation, you lose. He said a number that's just not reasonable, but they know that they have to come way down. Not just down, not 20-20, but they have to come way down. That's why I think it's such a boss move. Carmine wants to break the appraiser's kneecaps. Vic, the appraiser, they call him. Joey Peeps is on it. His character, John, he's getting some reps. Could he be getting some more playing time in the offing? It's potential. Bobby's kids talk late at night about whether their mom will haunt them. Somebody should let Paulie know about this so he can set the record straight for them. Satanic black magic. Sick shit. Next, Paulie and Johnny Sack take a stroll. Take a fucking walk around the neighborhood, right? Note the early morning light. Caravajesque. Johnny says there may be change at the top. This motherfucker, man. Paulie says, Tony? Facial expression, John suggests he'd be okay with it. He didn't skip a beat. He was just, I lost a lot of respect for Polly at that moment. Sign me up is what he said, man. Yeah. It's like being on a squad, your team's down, and you have your wild card team, to use a baseball analogy for you, or uh, to use an NFL analogy, and you have an opportunity to jump to a team that gets a bye week one of the playoffs. He's ready to jump ship without batting an eyelash. Problematic for me, man. Yeah, and Johnny, I don't think he believes that Polly could fit those shoes. He's totally using him. Totally. Buttressed. This whole thing is buttressed by Johnny Sack saying, I wanted to say the word buttressed, and then I decided I wanted to say it twice. (laughs) 
buttressed by Johnny Sack saying, Carmine won't forget, Polly, if there is any fallout. This, remember, is an ongoing thing between Polly and Johnny Sack, this notion that Carmine thinks very highly of him. It's bait. And unfortunately for Polly, he's not smart enough to see it. But I feel like most capo regimes... Polly, at least to his perspective, has been slighted. He hasn't been treated the way he thought he should. And Johnny's just taking advantage of that. He's dangling low-hanging fruit. Cut to Tony at Uncle June's. Junior's moody as fuck. Did you offer my nephew something? I'm registering yours. Not made. Did you offer him an aspirin? Cunt. There's a competency hearing coming up. Tony reminds him that if the hearing doesn't work, they have that option with the jurors. Always playing chess, seeing all those permutations at internet speed. Which got me thinking about jury tampering, John. Which, of course, is attempting to influence jury composition or jury decisions. It's a big deal and a big crime. Like, to the tune of 10 years in prison and a six-figure fine on each count. John, that's not quite 20 fucking years but certainly enough to make Phil Leotardo bristle. (laughs) If you don't know, just put it in your back pocket for now. That's not a spoiler, right? No. Cut to the Soprano Kitchen with Carm and Janice. Janice is lamenting the fact that she's stuck at platonic with Bobby, to use her word. Carmella pivots. Well, Karen was a wonderful person. I'm sure God must have his reasons, but uh, sometimes you have to wonder. Janice says the word harpy, which is a grasping or unpleasant woman. The context here being that her trying to say anything to get Bobby to move on from Karen is going to make her look bad. Thankfully, she said it, so we didn't have to. She's the harpy. She's playing chess. More than chess, I'd say, is she's Livia incarnate. Yeah, but I, I, I struggle with this, and maybe we touch on more when we kind of see to what level she goes to in this episode to get what she wants, but I feel like her intentions are genuine in the fact that she cares about Bobby and the kids and is frustrated with doing it the way that she should with patience and virtue and just being a good person. And then you see the, the sad side of her that goes to these lengths to get what she wants, but I still think... I mean, she's part soprano, so she's just part of it. She's 100% soprano. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. She is 100% soprano, but... Cut to Vic, the appraiser. Headphones are on. Love that touch. On site, doing his thing, measuring lot size and whatnot. Joey peeps, gets out of the car, and lets him know who his new employer is. Love the angle from the gutter from the vantage point of his disc man that just got tossed up there, looking down on him getting a beating. Nice little, I don't know what it was, but it was a, what I like to say, je ne sais quoi. Tony's unconcerned that Johnny and company want to start their own thing. They don't really want to start a separate operation. You know the costs that are involved in our kind of a HUD scam? You got the appraiser, the poverty pimp. They want in on a going thing. So true, John. Then he says, I'm not going to fucking go ballistic. 
he's referencing his impulse control. Remember, he was complaining about this to Melfi earlier in the episode. Then Tony asks Syl to check in with Beansy. What a blast from the past. Welcome, Blast from the Past, season two. Beansy, of course, is in Miami. He wants to talk to Little Carmine. Are we finally going to meet Little Carmine? Feel him out, Tony says. Maybe we can get to Carmine's queen by working the angles and developing his knights vis-a-vis Little Carmine. Again, Tony's playing chess. Beansy's got to run into him, which is a nice, subtle writing reference. You won't catch it if you're not looking for it. Beansy, of course, got run over by Richie April. John, Tony and Silvio notice Polly looming, so they wait for him to leave. What did you make of that then? If I had looked at this episode maybe at the first glance, and because I know what you're talking about, and I remember the look, and it was significant enough to point notice to. They wait. But... I chalked it up to it's the consigliere talk and that's it. They just have different conversations. And, and Silvio uses the line later, need to know basis. Yeah. And this is something that Paulie was on a need to know basis on. Something that I think anybody wouldn't sitting there would take notice to because it's just Tony wants to talk to Sil alone. Yeah. But it, it's a good foreshadow for what we find out later. We'll find out in a moment. Cut to the Soprano family dinner. Stuffed Artichokes are the main event. The best. Cactus, according to AJ. You're not Italian if you don't like artichokes, Hugh says to AJ. This got me wondering about Italians and artichokes. John, it turns out artichokes date back to the days of Homer and was an ancient food of the Romans and Greeks. Sicily has been a cultivator of them since time immemorial. The Italian word for artichoke is carciofo. Carciofo. I hope that <laughs> was accurate. And sounded good. Sounded good. Naya would hopefully approve. Italy is the global leader in artichoke production, and it's not even close. Their annual production tonnage is almost half a million tons, whereas the U.S., for comparison, is at 43,000 tons a year. You like artichokes? I do. Um, it's a lot of work. Beautifully said. Yeah. That's, I like them if they're presented to me, and I don't have to do anything except put a fork to them. Yeah. Mike Piazza who AJ also mentions in this back and forth about artichokes, definitely ate his fair share of artichokes amongst other cruciferous vegetables, John, as he was a career over 300 hitter who logged 427 home runs and 1,300 RBIs over his 16 years in the bigs. And I never forgave him after he left the Dodgers for the Mets. I was just going to say, he, of course, was catcher, for the New York Mets when this episode first aired. He defected and betrayed John's beloved Dodgers. Uh, You're a baseball guy. Did you ever see Mike Piazza play? Oh, yeah. Okay. AJ is being rude, trying to impress Bobby Jr., perhaps. Devin rings the doorbell right on cue. Carmela's look to AJ is classic. She could wring his neck. Post-dinner, Hugh shares news of his encounter with Connie Francis. 
there's this episode's limited series waiting to happen. Then, Beansy calls Tony from a massage chair. Saved by the ringer, Tony thinks. Beansy looks like Mo Green in one, minus the glasses in that chair. Beansy's doing fine fettle, he tells us, which of course is an old saying for in good health. He calls to let Tony know that the meeting has been set. Next, Anthony and Devin are making out and listening to Clocks by Coldplay. He's got a nice new blue Mac laptop. John, those things were fire back in the day. The quintessential marriage of art and technology. I never had one, though. I was a MacBook person back mm. then. See, and I'll be the probably the only person to admit that that album by Coldplay was fire. I was listening to it all day today. I have a whole little thing about it coming up. What's like, your favorite song of that album? Uh, it's the last one, the really slow melodic. Amsterdam? Like, no. Uh, talking about wanting to live in a wooden house. Oh, um, no. Oh, was that? Okay, so it was Clocks. That was the second. So the oh, last song on there was Amsterdam. The one before it was A Rush of Blood to the Head. Then there's A Whisper. Is this the original Coldplay album? No, it's the second album. Okay, so then I'm You're, I'm you're confusing it. Yeah. yeah. My favorite song on the album, it kind of goes back and forth. But I, the Clocks is, is, is incredible. Karm brings Bobby's kids up to AJ, says they need to be entertained. AJ's going to help them find a game. So they decide to do the fucking Ouija board. Have you ever done a Ouija board before? So I grew up Catholic in, in the religious education, like leading up to being confirmed. We had yeah. to take a bunch of uh, educational classes and, and, you know, coursework. Yeah. And one of them was this night where, and I vividly remember this, this lady came in and talked about like Satanism and everything in the, in the world and like really talked ill about the Ouija board and that it's, it's power and that it's real and that, you know, stay away from that thing. So at an early age, I was just like, mm, I'm not even getting near that thing. It's spooky. Quick history on it. It dates as far back as 1894. It's currently owned by Hasbro, the same company that owns Monopoly. John, that immediately told me I knew that talking board was a fucking scam. Also, we can't leave this scene before properly addressing Coldplay's Clocks, a song off their 2002 second album, A Rush of Blood to the Head, which is exactly what we get every time those opening soprano credits roll. Easily one of the greatest songs ever. What do you think about that statement? The Coldplay Clock song? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Beg to differ, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Oh! It has aged very well for me, man. I listened to it again today. I listened to that album. Uh, that was a really important album as far as my relationship with Katie went. We People really hate distance. on Coldplay now. I don't get First it. First two albums were great. Yeah. First two albums, they were indie. They got too big is what it is. People hate success. People hate things that become a fucking thing. Yeah. You know? Um, and fuck that. Yeah, good for them. You know, they sure. blew up. Okay. Man, easily one of the greatest songs ever, and I got the look of death. Okay. <laughs> Next, AJ has an idea. How about we try to contact the dead for real as the camera zooms way in on him? In general, John, that camera choice and direction is something that David Chase likes to avoid. Got that from the Blu-ray DVDs. They all hold hands. The room is dimly lit by candle. My question here is, where did AJ get all this knowledge from on this particular subject matter? Fucking internet. 
Well, there's a little bit of Olivia here in him. Yes, a little bit of Olivia here in him, a little bit of Olivia in Janice, and mm. maybe a little bit of Olivia later on down this episode. We shall see. Tony tells Silvio about going down to Florida. They bring up Polly, what we just talked about. Tony's suspicious that he's been talking to Johnny Sack. Where do you think this theory came from, John? It's out of the blue. Who else could have told? Who else was sitting there he's, at that room? He's with crossed the joke? off all the names. Yeah. And the last one standing is Polly. That's the only justifiable answer because yeah. all of a sudden, out of the blue, I suspect it was Polly. Cut to Vic the appraiser. He gets beat up again, this time by Vito and company. The poor son of a bitch. Start up there with Georgie. Yeah. Um, unfortunate exactly. characters. Nice one. Yeah, yeah, unfortunate character. I was going to say, cue Joni Mitchell, both sides now over here. Guy can't catch a break. Bobby and Janice go on a date. They see a movie together. They eat Nathan's afterward. Fucking romantic over here. You went to the cemetery today, didn't you? How do you know? Because you got the cemetery mud on your shoes. Mud? What are you, Marge Hinchin, Brendan, now? What do you know about the mud? You've been spying on me? Why? I can't go to the cemetery. Cue the malaprop. Cue the malaprop, of course, referring to Marge Helgenberger, the actor. Is that the malaprop? Yeah, it's the actress who played uh, on CSI. And did she have a role that would have had her being a mind reader? No, it was just more of like uh, investigating like the uh, footprints and the mud because Janice tries to downplay that she didn't follow him probably. It was a shout out She's to like, CSI. She's like, the graveyard mud. Like, get the fuck out of here. You've been spying on me? <laughs> we learn Bobby's not paying the funeral bill because they put an additional 15 pounds on Karen when they did her up. Janice calls it morbid clinging. What's that? I looked into it. Turns out it's some kind of dependent personality disorder. I got curious about the word clinging in particular. I did some reading and found a nice analogy that I'd like to share with you. It's rooted in Buddhism. Think of your thoughts, John, and everything that happens in your day as a rope running through your hands. If you cling, to it at any point or at any time for too long or too often, you'll get rope burn. Interesting analogy. I loved it. I'm certainly guilty of clinging. What about you? Do you cling to things or are you pretty zen when it comes to that? You seem pretty zen in general. Is that accurate? Uh, with o- older age, yeah. I, I tend to let things go or just remove the things that bother me in my life. No rope burns over here. Very soft hands. Lucky guy. Could learn a lot from you. Jan and Bobby fight. She's my wife. Well, she's dead, and I'm here. Shut the fuck up. You shut the fuck up. Cut to Tony listening to I Shot the Sheriff in his new media room. We're building up to something in this new media room, right? Eric Clapton keeps coming back. This, of course, is the Eric Clapton version of I Shot the Sheriff. It became more popular, John, than the original and was even inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Typical Clapton. Bob Marley, though, rolling in his grave over here. Svetlana calls. She thanks him for the brooch. Looks like a hoof. 
Shout out to Pyomai. That's what I thought. Tony tries to see her again, but she cuts it off. Remember, last episode, she used him. She doesn't want to prop him up. This is so powerful and prophetic. It's a gut punch to him. And in a way, it creates this cascade of fallout with Melfi, with Carmella as this season matures. That lone statement took his impulse control, something he's been trying to get right all this time, and threw it right out the fucking window. She had a leg up on him. Oh, nice one. Cut to Melfi. This is a barn burner. Tony tells her he cut it off with the girl. He flips the script, of course, to save face. I thought he wanted a timeout from therapy, though. This kind of felt like a I'm just making sure session, right? He says that a diamond pendant is what he gives to every girl when he eases them out the door and admits in saying this that he's such a fucking prick. Do you think he has a drawer at home with all of these just like he bought in bulk? I don't think he has a drawer at home, but I think he might have a safe in one of his offices. The Gumar goodbye. He's smart enough to not have it, keep it at home. Yeah. At least I hope so. Melfi's face is classic. Then Tony fesses up. He says, it was she who gave me my walking papers, which of course is a nice phrase that comes from the vernacular of the prison system. Why did he reverse course here? He's completely honest with her here. He picks his honesty spots, John. Why did he pick this one? I think he realized how silly it was, and if he was bringing it up to get the advice, telling it in this different way wasn't going to get the answers that he needed. It goes back to this being a legitimate gut punch from Svetlana. Something that made him, like an open wound that he really actually genuinely needed a Band-Aid for, maybe. Then he goes off on why she broke it off. It was she who gave me my walking papers. You believe that? What I meant was You know why she didn't want to see me anymore? She said that I was high maintenance. And this is after all the time and all the money and all the fucking Prozac and all the fucking cocksucking motherfucking dream interpretations. And she said she didn't want to prop me up. And it's from abroad that walks around on crutches half the time. Nice, huh? Note, he has to hurt her any way he can on the way down. He's going down for the count, but he doesn't go down without swinging. And David Chase has said this, once you cross him, you know he becomes relentless. So he loved Svetlana, but now she's just a chick with one one leg, right? Then he admits that he's not, and basically the whole point of this episode, and, and if you want to break it down to like, what's this episode about? He admits he's not interested in changing in finding a way out. He's a miserable prick, and that's what he is. He acknowledges that change, again, the word metamorphosis, being patient like a caterpillar, is not for him. It's not Tony Soprano. To which you wonder, is Melfi about to get a pendant now too? Note that she's wearing a nice one already, one that symbolizes, no less, freedom and liberation. Is that a message of sorts, a subtle hint uh, that maybe she's out of this stranglehold of a relationship? Just have to put that out there on the table. Then there's another fucking brilliant monologue about happiness. All this fucking self-knowledge. What the fuck has it gotten me? Okay, maybe it got me some shit in the beginning, some leadership strategies. All we do now is we sit around half the time shooting the breeze about philosophy, the Italians, my Uncle Eckley. I try to keep the focus on the work. So when it goes off, it's my fault. Okay, fine, I accept that. 
Melfi says the real work can begin now that the panic attacks and baseline depression have been dealt with. What's she talking about? What's the real work? Well, she tells us. When we're not constantly having to put out fires, we can really delve into who you are and what you're really after in your very brief time on this earth. I'm sorry. I don't want to do this anymore. Killer. But Tony's unmoved. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He doesn't want to hear her anymore. He doesn't hear her anymore. And that's understandable. Her tone, though, conveys that she's kind of begging a little. In the way it's presented, you think, is it for his sake or hers? I say it's somewhat some of both. Yeah, but I, I think, too, if she's experiencing him having an issue with uh, Svetlana being so okay with him trying to end things, that if Melfi didn't put up a fight a little bit, like, that would upset Tony, too. Good point. Great point. He did stay four years, though, and that's massive. Melfi admits he's shown a lot of courage. He really wanted it. And this got me thinking about three questions. Why do people start therapy in the first place? When do people start to think it's reached its plateau? Importantly, not every week has to be a breakthrough, which is something that I just recently learned. And breakthroughs are only impactful if you arrive at them yourself. And the third question is, what makes people actually decide, like Tony, that they don't want it anymore? All good questions, to quote, Junior Soprano. (laughs) In thinking about this question, when people actually decide to leave, how does it work? Therapists actually start therapy. They approach therapy with termination in mind. They know there's, it's finite. They know it's not going to be ongoing, which is something that's kind of cool. I thought, you think they just, they want to get every week's a check, right? It's all about the motherfucking cocksucking money. Tony says, but no, the very premise of starting therapy, there's an end game in play. They have a, they have a framework on how they want to end it. And also I learned that pausing is common. She stands up. You've got my number if you ever change your mind. Thank you, Tony, for asking the question that I've been wondering. What's customary? How do we, do we shake hands? Uh, He jokes, how about a diamond pin? She extends her hand, but he, he gets emotional. And he reaches in and kisses her on the cheek. Powerful moment. He leaves. We watch him close the door. She stands visibly shaken, but wonderfully postured. Her scaffolding is, is unraveling, though. I love the choice to stay on her, but play the voiceover of Elliot's voicemail. She needs a session. We need a session right then, right? Well, guess who's no longer a patient of mine? Calling all cars. We get the title reference, Calling All Cars, which of course is an old police radio dispatch for all hands on deck, please. Suspect at large. Cut to Janice sending AOL IMs to Bobby Jr. What a blast from the past. Shout out to AOL IM. Do you remember, John? Do you remember your AOL IM name? Sarcastic 271. 
Amazing. I desperately tried to remember mine and I couldn't. I've tried many a times to try to like sign back into that or an old uh, Yahoo messenger. It's gone. Oh man, my AOL IM was, that's how I used to lay the Mac down, man. Oh yeah. For real. Dude, the game was strong. If I had time to, like twice as witty when you had time to type. Oh man. She anonymously tells them where the Ouija board is in the house. She does this to reel Bobby in. Pretty clever on her part. What does this scene tell you about Janice? Does it tell you anything new? Does it tell you anything different? She just knows how to get what she wants. Well said. Cut to the sound of an airplane landing, to which I always think of the in and out by LAX. Tony goes to Florida, Miami Beach in particular. He's listening to Spanish radio while driving, clearly because he's in a hurry, no time to change the station. He seems a little paranoid, like maybe he's losing a tail. That was what came to Did you like that? That was sort of the Miami version of the beginning of the show. Oh, Oh, like the opening credits. Yeah. Oh, cool. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, because he's sitting there smoking the cigar yeah. with his hands. He's listening to music. You're like, Good oh, wow. call. Yeah. Very appropriate attire. We're in the salmon blazer. Cream shirt. Then we get a nice little writing touch here. Beansy is getting off a ramp. Certainly not built by Richie. No Lionel's in sight. But this is another season two flashback. Back in a courtroom, Junior, Melvoin, and Larry Brazy are all there. Court is going to move forward. Fuck! Despite Melvoin's best efforts to extend. Junior's face, all time, legendary. Juror time is what this is all about. Some juror is about to be really fucking unlucky, right? Cut to Janice, smoking out, listening to music, playing it cool with Bobby on the phone. She's smoking a joint, but the phone is extension cabled all the way over to her on her lap, signaling that she's clearly waiting for his fucking call. And it comes. So she gets what she wants. She goes over to Bobby. He tells Jan about the Ouija board. She manipulates him into thinking she should be around to help more, right? That's what this is all about. Mm -hmm. Quite brilliant on Jan's part, long-term thinking, to set it up via IM in the first place. The whole thing, from a manipulation, from Olivia standpoint, she's on the all-star team for that. But also, I don't know how you feel, but are you rooting for them to be together? I don't think I cared, but I I had no doubt that it... That it would. It was leading to this. The dead have nothing to say to us, Bobby. It's our own narcissism that makes us think they even care. She offers to make something. She pulls Karen's ziti out of the freezer. What is this, the third time she's done that now? Blast from the past again. This time, though, John, she's okay to eat it. One step in the right direction for Jan, for Bobby. Special shout-out to Autopsy for pointing us to the mysterious movement of Janice's wine glass likening it to Karen's ghost. Did you catch that? It's uh, listed on IMDb as a goof, and um, the workaround on that was that, oh, it's perfect because there was a lot of ghosts and things in this episode. Genius if it was. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was on purpose. You though. think it was accidental? Yeah. yeah. Dinner in Miami. Girls engaged in happy banter. Beansy gives them the boot. 
Tony and Little Carmine talk. This is the first time we meet the man, the malaprop, the legend, Little Carmine Lupertazzi. Course played brilliantly by friend of the pod, actor Ray Abruzzo. True, John's a pragmatist, but he's also a greedy motherfucker. Lives above his head a little. I am reminded of Louis D. whatever's finance minister. Does something. He built the chateau. Nicole and I saw it when we went to Paris. It even outshone Versailles, where the king lived. In the end, Louis clapped him in irons. Louis, whatever the finance minister, the chateau outshone Versailles. John, he's referring to Nicolas Fouquet, the finance minister, who made an argument that he built his chateau, which, by the way, took 20 fucking years to honor King Louis and earn his goodwill. But instead, that plan backfired, and he was thrown in jail again for 20 fucking years until he died. He calls Louis Louis instead of Louis, which is fucking amazing. He says Versailles instead of Versailles. The whole thing is so fucking rich. The perfect introduction to this character. It tells us so much about what kind of a guy he is and you know how little he knows, but how confident he is, right? Then he makes Tony wait while he lights a cigar. And Ray, when he was here, pointed to this little detail in our conversation. The direction, the specific instruction that he got was to make it slow and lasting, to in effect get under Tony's skin. And like clockwork, Tony's face conveys exactly that. Feel out your father, Tony says, so he doesn't give you a mats for sticking your nose in. I couldn't find a really good definition for that expression, but I think it means like, so he doesn't kill you or kick your ass for sticking your nose in. You okay yeah, with that? I'm okay with that. Okay. The proper response is not forthcoming in a business-like time frame. My next move will not be for the conversation. I get it. Okay, back on Janice and Bobby. Candle at dinner, eating Karen's last ziti. How does it taste, Bobby? That was a little weird. It was their own little seance. Yeah, their own little seance. No words are spoken. Cut to the dream. Wrapping things up. The perfect leg stepping out of the car. Is it Gloria's? Do you think it's Svetlana's? Ralphie walking. Tony walking in suspenders. All of a sudden, he's an immigrant. Sounds of the country. Sound design is impeccable. He walks onto a porch. Knocks on a door, someone's inside, but we don't see who. Door opens, Tony walks in, says hello, hello. almost as if hello. that's the only English word he knows. I'm here for the masoner job, he says. Of course, his grandfather was a masoner. Harkens back to the pilot, I believe, when he's telling Meadow about how the church was built that they're sitting in, right? Mm-hmm. A woman walks down the stairs slowly, creaking steps, black shoes, black dress from the 40s or 50s. We can barely make out who it is. Obviously, the hair and age suggest Livia. That's the obvious answer, right? Which is also fitting 
since this is an episode that focuses heavily on Janus. The ghost of Livia in a dream is a great counterbalance to that. She is lit to perfection, had my Caravaggio juices flowing and then some. You know, speaking English, made this piage. What do you make of tea as an immigrant? What's that all about? It's a dream, I know, but it is it? weird. Then he wakes up. It's 9.07 a.m. or p.m. Could be either at this point. We don't know. It's the brilliance of the darkness of the room. There's red light in the bathroom. We know he's not home. There's heavy breathing, sweat. He goes out to the rear patio, and it's revealed that we are at the Fountain Blue Hotel, and we have a beautiful view of Miami Beach, and the Beach Boys are on. John, the dream was meaningless, it turns out. I asked you a question about it. You couldn't give me an answer either. The whole thing made no fucking sense. It was meaningless, right? From the standpoint that it doesn't connect any dots for us, close any loose ends for us, we are merely existing with Tony and going where he goes, both inside his mind and out. Fitting then, though, that Livia was in it. Further propagating her life's credo. What's the point? It's all a big nothing. But the nice differentiating touch we get here is the Beach Boys tell us as they play out, everybody's gone surfing. John, thanks, bud. Vic, so nice to see you. See you next time. (laughs) 